the pen is mightier than the sword. The people in these industries are my clients. I like knowing that I can talk to them in their own language. And branding and image does have a lot to do with content. I mean, this is a two-dimensional platform. My clients do ask me to rewrite content for their website, for their LinkedIn profile. And what I love is taking all that content and creating a really good, robust narrative. That's what I love about writing. From pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's the Communication Commandments, a presentation of Boston Edits. Now here's your host, Kim Calvey. Everybody. Thank you for tuning into my show. My name is Kim Calvey. I'm the owner of Boston Edits. My show today is hosted by David Yes, the Podfather Boston Podcast Network. And today uh, we're going to be discussing um, all things writing. Well, we're going we're to carve out a little corner of that, copywriting, copy editing, proofreading, basically what it is that Boston Edits is known for. But please stay tuned for an interesting show. We're going to talk about some stories that we have both read and how it relates to storytelling. So, you you'd um, call me the pod, you, Kim. You call me the Podfather. So matter of factly, as if every I, I walk down the street and people say, "There's the Podfather." But I aren't do, you passing out hats and T-shirts? <laughs> hey, there's an idea. <laughs> Swag for a podcast is always good. <laughs> or we could do the communication commandments: hats with the two big tablets in front. You know? Yeah. That'll yeah. We don't want to pass out tablets, though. N- no, that's <laughs> no. <laughs> well, you have to pay a premium. You pay a premium for that service. Yeah. So you must be excited for Maiden Voyage of the pod. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. I, I am excited. I'm, I'm glad that we, we spent some time putting this together. I was, I'm still thrilled and I still get comments from uh, people, uh, receive comments from people about the pod that you and I did, podcast you and I did this past summer. Mm-hmm. It was great fun. We talked about literally and <laughs> that other horrific word that has now made its way into mainstream lexicon, which I'm not going to utter. Um, but You're not even going to say it? That's, that's I'm a, not. That's a no. All right. Well, not. If somebody wants to know what it is, they're going to have to listen to the last podcast. Well, there you go. Yeah. Uh, but yes, I will not rest until we reclaim the word literally. It does. It does. <laughs> not, the word literally has now become to mean not literally, figuratively. The, it means the direct antithesis yes. now. It's awful. So I blame the millennials. Clean it up, kids. Come on. These are people who use their thumbs to write, though. That's right. That's I shouldn't it. have said that that was unkind, but it's true. <laughs> well, hopefully on this podcast, we will right some of those wrongs. Okay, so let's get started. Let's do it. Let's do it. What do you want to talk about first? I want to talk about storytelling. That's something that I generally um, get into because, or fiction, and I'll tell you why, because it's really not my forte, largely. I mean, I love to read fiction, but I write nonfiction because I write for my clients and obviously they are thriving businesses. Do you have that article that I sent to you? Yes. Yes, indeed. Do you have it handy? Yes. Oh, excellent. Okay. Um, could you read the, the highlighted portions? That's what I wanted to talk about in today's show. It's an article from Writer's Digest from this past summer. And the title of the article, Have Pen, Will Travel, mm-hmm. subheadline, travel can be the most important tool writers have to inspire new work. An author recounts how journeys across the world have inspired his books. The author is Simon Van Bui. Boo, boy, boy, B-O-O-Y. Simon. Sorry, Simon. And the passage from Simon's article reads as follows. After a few moments of gazing at the swirling eddies, my eye was drawn to a sleeping figure on the bank. It was a disheveled-looking gentleman, homeless perhaps, with a severely deformed skull. My first thought was love, a deep compassion, as though some part of me recognized the man was someone from my own life, a father or a beloved uncle, a child from a previous existence even. 
Of course, as far as I knew, he was a total stranger. But the way he entered my heart so quickly, I knew that I had to tell his story. I felt compelled to. I'm sure I'm not the only writer whose work often begins with a seismic shift of compassion for another human being. In many cases, telling somebody's story allows me to love them without ever knowing them, which is odd if you think about it. But the process of writing leaves me feeling connected to people where before there had been only indifference. I think that this sense of being able to relate to and love strangers carries over into the reading experience. So tell me why that passage stuck out to you. It jumped out at me because I had a similar experience a couple of years ago. Um, I was at a shopping mall just doing some whatever miscellaneous shopping. And there was this uh, young woman uh, who was in the store and she was... um, she was with somebody. I don't know if it was her mother or a caretaker. She was in her twenties, but she was, you can tell she was, she, I think she was hearing impaired. Mm. Um, you know, she, she didn't have any, you know, physical challenges, um, mobility challenges or anything like that. But, um, anyway, but you could just tell that she, it looked it immediately struck me that she was just there. Um, it was the first time, um, you know, maybe being like a responsible consumer and just taking ownership of of things that you know she she demanded that she knew she needed that she knew she wanted instead of perhaps other people telling her well this is what you have this is what you're getting um, and and in any case she just seemed so just so innocently happy you know just just to be part of um, you know consumer America if you will you know or playing her small part you know is, you know supporting local industry and <clears throat> when I was standing in the checkout line she was a couple of people behind me and. Um, she was talking to the person in front of in front of her, uh, who was directly behind me, and she was talking to the person um, right behind her. And uh, you know, she was communicating in her own way. And um, she was just—you could just tell—she was just so excited about what she was purchasing. She just wanted to share it with everybody. And I just thought it was very sweet. And you know, I was just happy for her. Like that's the whole—that's what really got to me as it speaks to this article, right? It just mm-hmm. it was just this this young person just happy to be taking care of herself, being responsible, spending her own money, however she earned it. And, and just happy to share that experience with everybody. Um, and, and just, you know, wanting everybody to participate. And I just thought it was just such a sweet gesture and just very innocent. And we don't see a lot of that these days, right? We live in a society that's very, you know, instant gratification, gimme, gimme, gimme. And, and I just thought it was the complete opposite and, and just wholly innocent. And I, I I just love that. And I, and ever since then, I've, I keep thinking, I've got to write this down somewhere, but, and I haven't yet, but it's obviously still blazing. Yeah. It's it's exactly like what the writer describes in this article. It's on you to be curious enough as a writer and you wouldn't necessarily, that wouldn't necessarily be the first trait you think of that's important to a writer to be curious. You would think it would be more like what you're actually, the pen you're putting to the paper. But mm-hmm. to to notice things like this, yeah, and just like the writer does, you you developed some instant compassion for this person you don't know. And um, mm-hmm. it, it's a great it's a great lesson because you're right in this in this world of of what we drive ourselves crazy being so busy and. And in the electronic age, there are so many ways to be connected. And you forget to, you know, as the great Ferris Bueller once said, mm-hmm. life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look <laughs> around once in a while, you might miss it. And and so both you and uh, and Simon here thought to do that. I think it's great. She noticed me. You know, she was too far away to talk to me. But in any case, I finished, you know, first left the store and she and the person she was with, they were parked close by me and she called out. She didn't know my name or anything like that, but she called out, got my attention. She just waved vigorously. You know, like she was just so happy to be there. <laughs> right. And, you know, it was just like, you know what? Okay. Then not like usually when I go to a store, okay, it's usually because I have to, like I'm run out of something and I have to reimburse my supply somehow. It's it, like, 
but I think what struck me about that was that she just, she was just so full of innocence and joy and happiness and just responsibility and just wanting to like make everybody a part of her day out. Right. And, and I just thought it was super sweet. That's all. So my point with this is that I read this story in this magazine and it jumped out at me for that very reason, the story I just told you. And that's what I find as even when I'm copywriting somebody else's content or if I'm writing original content. When I talk to my clients, I'm usually writing content, original content for them. And what I need to do to really convey their narrative is really get to the heart of who they are, like what drives them, like their why. Okay, that's that's the language we're using now. Yeah. And But it's not just their, the why because this is what they like to do. This is what they're good at. This is how they earn a living. So they really want to promote themselves. No, it's more like this is what really, this is who they are. Like it's the fabric of what makes them. You know, whether it's built into their DNA or it's a, it's a discipline that they've spent years cultivating and they just, they are really proud of it, which, whatever it is. And that's the sort of thing that when I write for my clients, I really want to make sure that I capture for them. A lot of good writers, I think also have excellent memories that they, you know, they, they have to write it down right that instant. I mean, that's when mm. they're inspired and they don't really want to capture the moment. And like photographers will capture the moment by taking a picture, right? Writers will always have pen and paper and they get a thought or, or they've got a tape recorder and they speak into the tape recorder, however they do it now. But yeah, it, it's- How do you- determine the voice and how do you sort of get in somebody's head when you want to show them how to write or write for them? Okay. So when I meet with my clients, like we have what I call a discovery and that's when we've agreed to work together. So this is our first meeting. And if I'm going to write original content for them, I have to talk to them. And so honestly, thank goodness for Zoom. I'm not thankful for this pandemic, but I'm thankful for Zoom Mm -hmm. because when I meet with them, I'm able to, we set up, you know, we, we communicate via Zoom. And what I'll do is I will, I let them know ahead of time that I'm recording them. And a big reason why is because I don't want to be distracted by taking notes and saying, okay, can you repeat that again? What was that? Say that one more time. Because if we're just, if we're communicating via Zoom, I can see their face. I can see their face light up when they talk about whatever gets them excited or makes them happy or something that really irritates them. And it, it could be anything depending. I mean, I work with so many different types of clients, but anyway, just you know, so I can gauge their, their enthusiasm or their disappointment or their frustration or their intent, how earnest they are about something. So I can capture that with Zoom and I record the, the meeting. And so then once the meeting is over with, I save it and I go back and I look at it and I do. I, that's when I take notes and that's when I will write. Okay. She, she got really excited when she was talking about this. She did this for her client and this worked out and it was the 11th hour and she saved her client or he saved his client X amount of dollars. And they're really proud of that. And that was a first, or they came up with something creative because of this pandemic has changed their business model a little bit. And they've been really diligent about how they want to, you know, rebrand themselves and it's been successful and they're, they're modest about that, but they're still very proud of that. So I, I have to see that in order for me to actually capture it, write about it, put it on paper, two-dimensional platform. You've heard me say that before. Mm. So that when somebody is looking at it on their website or in their blog, th- that is, that is, it's captured and the reader can pick up on that and it's invoked properly. Do, so, you, do you see things when you play it back and you re-listen and re-watch your conversation with your clients? Do you pick up things that you might not have the first time around? Usually when I look at it a second time, it's because I'm writing something that, and, I, and, I don't, and I'm not crazy about it. It's like, all right, there's something wrong with those two sentences. Mm-hmm. What's, and, and like any good, anybody who is diligent at what they do, I mean, after a while, you have to walk away from something for a couple of hours and just come back to it with fresh eyes. I do that all the time. Everybody mm-hmm. does. We all do. So yeah, so I, I will, I'll come back to something and then I'll look at it with fresh eyes and then it clicks. Then it's like, okay, all right. And thank goodness for the tools of the 
trade, like a thesaurus. That's like, I've, I've got two dog-eared copies because that's my, I need that. I'm so pleased that John Hallaby of Hallaby Law Group in Hingham, Massachusetts could join us today. Hi, John. How are you? Great. Thank you, Kim. Glad to be here. So glad to have you. Thank you very much for taking time out of your day. I know that you've got a busy law practice, so I'm especially grateful to you for scheduling time for us. Um, and you Kim, were- he even wore a tie for us, which I'm impressed at. I knew John was going to do that. John is a class act. That's right. <laughs> you guys are too kind. Spiffiest guy on Zoom. <laughs> awesome. So anyway, so John, so I'm so glad that you could join us. I know that you had a lot going on this year, but I wanted to, you and I had talked a couple of months ago, just you and I about your practice and the particulars of it. And I know I'd done a little bit of work on your LinkedIn profile and your and your website, and both of which have great content, which is excellent to get out for your, for website visitors, for anybody looking for someone like you, which we're going to talk about your law practice and what makes you uh, in a couple of minutes. But yeah, again, your LinkedIn profile looks excellent and your website looks great too. So props to you because lots of times clients or people don't have good content on their website and it's hard to discern what it is they do and how passionately they feel about it. So with that in mind, the conversation that you and I had before, we talked a lot about your personal injury area of your practice. And one thing that you said that I was hoping today you could elaborate on a little bit, you mentioned, you touched on it. And so I'd like to ask the question, what has helped you in negotiating a better settlement agreement for a client in a personal injury case? Yeah. So a few different things, I guess I'll start with my background itself. Oh, please. Yeah. Sorry. Go on. Yeah, sure. Well, and, and what I mean by that is with regard to the question. So we, for myself, I've been practicing uh, law for about 25 years. I've practiced in uh, a few different jurisdictions. I graduated from law school in the state of Ohio and practiced a little bit there as an intern in the summer during the course of my law school. After I graduated, I began practicing in Denver, Colorado, where I was at in various firms for first, third, or a little bit more of my um, career. And then I've been practicing here in Massachusetts since 2006. Most of those years before we started our own, for our own firm, which was just about 10 years ago, I had worked for insurance companies. And in those years, the work that I did was mostly defending claims involving alleged negligence by policyholders that uh, carry policies of coverage with the insurers. In addition to that, I do some work interpreting insurance contracts and advising mm-hmm. the companies whether or not they owe coverage. Now, with our practice here at Hallaby Law Group, I focus on both representation of injured people, bringing claims against uh, companies insured by insurance companies or persons insured by insurance companies, as well as a little bit of work for the insurers also. So with all that sort of background, when I'm representing folks who have been hurt or who have suffered losses because of a policyholder's negligence, because I had been representing those who have the insurance policies for all those years, I kind of know what the insurance companies are looking for when they're going to value a case and what they may be concerned about when they're deciding how much they're going to pay a claim or mm. whether they're going to want to settle versus try and try the case and try and beat the plaintiff. So mm. I think that that background comes to bear in, in those types of situations. Yeah, it certainly does. So I bet that now, so when you... So when you do have to drill down into a case and you have to you know, find out about how you can negotiate a better settlement or you're working with, you're dealing with an insurance company in a personal injury case 
and that you have to kind of navigate what it is that the, the insurance company is concerned with. I mean, if you're defending somebody, if you're representing somebody who is uh, filing a suit against somebody who is insured, I would think the insurance company, they, they've got their representation and they, are, they know inside and out what their bottom line is or what their pain point is, if you will. I mean, pun not intended, but so you must have to do some negotiating back and forth. And are some of them fair? I mean, some of them, they just like right off the bat, they're just like, okay, well, that makes perfect sense. Or does it generally, you really have to, there's a lot of back and forth and you have to really stand up for your client and just say, no, this is, this is really what the, what the issue is. And there's negligence here. Yeah, so there's almost always some degree of negotiation that's going to be needed in in terms of maximizing a resolution. Mm -hmm. The only time that you might run into a scenario where you don't really have to worry about something like that is where somebody is inadequately insured. So the value of the claim that you're bringing as the plaintiff clearly exceeds the amount of coverage that the wrongdoer procured. Mm-hmm. And no reasonable person on the insurance company's end, the adjuster, can't really come up with a reason for paying less than the limit. So it simply offers the limits of the coverage and there's no more money there. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're dealing with a company, that's not, not likely going to happen because then the company has assets that you can seek beyond the coverage of the insurance policy. If mm-hmm. you're dealing with an individual It can be the case sometimes that an insurance company offers the full limits of the policy and there's still some more money that could be had in order to uh, make your client whole, even though you've got everything from the carrier. And you hire an investigator to investigate somebody's assets and Mm -hmm. determine whether or not that's going to be a situation. But oftentimes, if the policy coverage is going to be offered by the insurer and you're dealing with somebody who does not have any assets that are likely going to be subject to a judgment. You're going to take the insurance policy limits and that's going to be all the money that's going to be available for your client. Now, if you're dealing with something in the automobile insurance context, there's one other way of uh, seeking additional coverage. So if you're in an auto loss and let's say you have a case worth $200,000, that's the value of the case, but the person that caused the accident has coverage to the tune of $100,000 and that's offered. Mm-hmm. Then you can look to your own policy if you purchased uh, what's called optional underinsured motorist protection that raises the limits oh, okay. of the party that committed the negligent act up to the amount you purchased and then you end up making a claim with your own carrier for further monies. Oh, okay. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Okay. So now what you just said made me think of three questions. So the first one, you know, if somebody had, if somebody, if a plaintiff is going to file suit against a company and a company has assets, do you, this kind of segues into my next question. Do you use those experts that you reach out to the experts Do they do the investigation to look into see the assets or is that just a straight, you're the attorney and they have to reveal what their assets are or who, who does that work? Yeah, so usually that would be an investigator, okay. and you can eyeball certain things that are going to make somebody subject to judgment. In Massachusetts, for example, there's homestead protection. If somebody mm-hmm. files a homestead, then they're going to be protected up to the limits of the homestead statute for any amounts on their home. But even outside of that, you're never going to be able to levy and execute on a home and displace somebody. You just be putting a lien on their home to the amounts that you could try and collect from. 
So if somebody owns their own home and doesn't own other real estate, that's going to be very tough to get some money from that person outside of other avenues. Five, excuse me, 401k plans and mm-hmm. tax advantaged financial accounts designed mm-hmm. to fund somebody's retirement are typically not attachable types of financial accounts. But if somebody has a, a brokerage or a non-tax advantage account, like for example, a, ta- a um, tax, excuse me, I didn't think of the word, a taxable financial account, mm-hmm. then that's something that's going to be much more easily attached. So you look at somebody with a second home mm-hmm. or a non-retirement uh, account with a lot of money in it outside of just a checking account or something like that. Vehicles as well. Most vehicles don't have a lot of value, but if somebody has high value vehicles and an investigator can look at R&D records for things like that. Hmm. Okay. So if, so, so let's say somebody files a claim and you know, like they, you have to put a lien on their house. Maybe this is an obvious question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Who become who's in the first position then? Like is the bank or the, who you know has the mortgage or is it now the, claimant. Yeah, the bank would have the first position. If somebody has a mortgage on their home, then Mm -hmm. the mortgage, then the note that's attached to the home via the mortgage is going to be sitting in first position. So even if they have a low mortgage and the claim is for exceeds that amount? Well, it it would be in first position. So let's say somebody has a home that's worth $500,000 and their principal on their mortgage is $50,000, then there would be $450,000 $450,000 remaining. But mm-hmm. again, any amounts that are subject to the to the Homestead Act are non-attackable okay. anyway. So you're going to be behind that amount also. Okay. All right. So it's really, so the Homestead, so if my understanding is correct, correct in layman's terms, the Homestead Act is really a, it's a real barrier for protect, to protect someone's home against a claim that might be brought against them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It gives a great deal of protection to homeowners in Massachusetts from creditors looking to attach the equity in their principal residence. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Let's see. So now you, I I know that you and I talked about this and I thought this was intriguing. You said you've worked on both sides of the table. So tell me a little, if you don't mind, can you give me a little bit of background on that and like how you, I mean, it, it sounds to me like that's certainly a value add for what you as an attorney now practicing in Hingham, what you bring to the table, that experience, correct? Sure. And since we're sort of talking about insured claims and uh, insurance matters, mm-hmm. uh, the statement you made is uh, applicable to both of those scenarios. So okay. insured matters are things like the auto crash I was referencing. So if somebody is driving too fast on the roadway and they collide with another vehicle because they weren't paying attention to the applicable laws and they caused mm-hmm. the accident, then they're going to be held liable. But they have to carry insurance in order to be a driver in Massachusetts. You have to have coverage. Uh, However, the amount of coverage you are going to have is elective. Mm -hmm. So when there is a loss like that, the auto insurance company for the wrongdoer hires an attorney to represent the driver if that driver is sued by the party who's hurt in the accident. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, the party who's hurt in the accident is going to have an attorney. Mm -hmm. So I've handled both types of those cases. I've worked for insurance companies representing drivers who've caused accidents, and I've represented injured people who are looking to recover because of the damages they sustained in a loss Hmm. uh, by an insurance company. So it's true. I guess that gives me insight to what the other side might be looking for when I'm representing an insurance company. I know what I would be looking to try and establish and try and emphasize if I was the plaintiff attorney in the particular loss and vice versa. If I'm representing an injured person, 
because mm-hmm. I've worked with insurance claims adjusters, sat in with claims committee meetings where discussions about what might make a particular claim valuable or less valuable and given advice in that regard. When I'm sitting in the seat of representing the injured person, then I'm going to be able to effectively kind of emphasize that which I know those adjusters are going to be more concerned about so we can get a better resolution for the for my client. Hmm, very good. Okay. And so now, so when you, so when a client calls you and they say that, that they've been injured and you ask them, you know, do you have insurance? And did you do, you know, to describe for me the nature of the, the accident. And they say, let's say it was a, a car accident. Both of them were in the car and the, they want to file a claim against somebody who ran a red light and hit, damaged the right side of their car. And now they've got tremendous whiplash, that kind of thing. Do you, I know you know, excellent lawyers are good listeners. And so is there always something that perhaps a, a, a potential client, when they tell you what their story is, that will nine out of 10 times, they always say the same one thing that makes you think, okay, they really do need my help. And I mean, I, 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 I know you could always find something to represent them and that sort of thing. But I mean, is there really something where you're just like, that would make it seem like it's a really good case that this potential client of mine might have? Yeah, so a good claim, if we're talking about negligence or bodily injury claims, mm-hmm. uh, are things like clear liability. So in mm-hmm. any case for damages resulting from a bodily injury situation, there's two elements to the case. One is liability and two is damages. Mm-hmm. So liability means who's at fault. So mm-hmm. if you're representing the plaintiff, you want to have facts given to you that are going to show that the party that you're looking to make the claim against is responsible for the loss Mm -hmm. and that your client, the plaintiff, is free from negligence. So in Massachusetts, there's comparative fault. Mm -hmm. So you can bring a claim against somebody who is at fault, but if you're comparatively at fault, it reduces your recovery. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. The second is damages. And when we're looking at damages in a bodily injury claim, those are uh, things that result from the injury. So when somebody's hurt, they have to seek medical care. So the economic damages are going to be the medical bills. And they're also going to be any wage loss that the person suffered because they couldn't continue with their job because of their injuries. So Mm -hmm. when you have uh, good objective evidence of medical care that was incurred because of the injury, Mm -hmm. and you've got good evidence that the person was not able to work and that they had a good history of working in a particular field for a given amount of money, then you've got really good information to put forth a strong economic loss claim from the particular accident. So those are really good things to um, look to initially as the attorney, both liability and the economic damages. And then lastly, the non-economic component, which is things like inconvenience, pain and suffering, uh, scarring, things that aren't quantifiable, but are important for a case, but they're a little bit more subject to interpretation and insurance companies are concerned about them if you can put forth a compelling case, but the good economic damages like medical bills and somebody who's lost wages with a good earnings history is not going to give them as much latitude when they are challenging your claim to do much with that challenge. Hmm. Okay. So now, so if those are things that are quantifiable, like you said, they've got a good work history, they are, they didn't contribute to the accident. What about like, for example, have you ever, how often or when 
And what degree do you get pushback from, let's say, an insurance company on behalf of your client? Like they might say, well, we're reluctant to pay because of something that can't be quantifiable. Like, I don't know. I, I think you had mentioned before when you and I were talking privately, like, like a concussion or something like that, right? Because then that, that bespeaks that the, the, your client might have to come up with a medical history or did they suffer from an accident before that may have caused a concussion that went undetected or something like that. Am I wrong in that? Uh, Sure. Some types of injuries, they are just not as readily or as easily replicated with objective testing. So if somebody is in an accident and they break their leg, you you take an x-ray and it shows the fracture Mm -hmm. and there's no question they were walking or they were not walking around with a broken leg before the accident. Mm -hmm. Now there's no question that it's broken because you've got the x-ray imaging. So clearly it's an objective injury caused by the accident. When you're talking about other types of injuries, Mm -hmm. things like myofascial pain, that's musculoskeletal type of pain that you might have in your neck, back, or okay. joints that are, that can be caused by trauma. It can also be caused by the aging process or stress or other traumas. Okay. Things like that. There are insurance, there are defenses available to a defendant, like mm-hmm. you might've had that injury before, or you mm-hmm. don't really have that injury because you're saying it in order to recoup money. And in order to show it, you're just saying that you have it, but because it's not easily replicable on objective testing, we're just having to sort of take your word for that. So that's a tougher claim to establish. You mentioned uh, brain injuries. So brain injuries happen a lot in traumatic losses, unfortunately. Brain injuries, there's certain uh, diagnostic criteria in order to ferret out whether or not somebody had a concussive event in a particular loss and whether or not that concussive event has learned has led to medium-term or long-term problems. But mm. a lot of that criteria is based on subjective reports of the particular person making the claim. And a lot of that information is also debated amongst the practitioners as to which criteria are important and which may not be. So, for mm. example, if somebody has amnesia about an event, one practitioner might say, well, that's clear indication of a concussion. Or if somebody has an MRI that shows a lesion on the brain that was taken after a loss, a practitioner might say, oh boy, that's good evidence of somebody having sustained a brain injury in a particular loss. However, you can certainly have a concussion leading to long-term problems without amnesia surrounding the particular event Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, and without a lesion on MRI testing. So In other words, you can have a legitimate claim without these types of uh, objective data that I'm mentioning, and uh, again, still have a very good uh, solid claim or have a a claim that is legitimate, but without that information, it makes it a little tougher to establish because then you're looking to other things that the insurance company might say are being presented in a manner so as to maximize recovery. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, you really don't have the condition or maybe you have it to a lesser degree than you're presenting the case. Okay. And so I guess, all right, so now I've got two two more questions that come from that. So the first one is, so if, so somebody has, you know, some kind of brain injury and they, their medical records and you get an expert to vouch for what your client needs to have presented in court. And then the other, the defendant has to, they've got to get the same type of expert, don't they? To look at the same information and I don't know, maybe poke, I, don't, I hate to put it like this, maybe try to poke holes in the hypothesis. Yeah, um, certainly. So it depends how big the claim is. If it's a smaller claim, 
the insurance company may wish to simply rely on cross-examination of their attorney to debunk the opinions of the expert that the plaintiff is presenting. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if it's a more expensive claim, uh, the insurance company will often hire, and if we're talking about medical experts, uh, a doctor to say somebody was injured in a particular accident and here's their prognosis and here are the long-term implications. Uh, The insurance company does have the right to hire their own expert and they have the right to have that medical expert physically examine the examine the plaintiff if a court order is obtained. Now, oh. it's fairly easy to obtain a court order, so oftentimes the lawyer for the plaintiff will agree to allow the examiner to conduct that physical exam because the court is going to act in such a fashion anyways. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, that's referred to as a Rule 35 examination, and the results mm-hmm. of that examination are required to be sent to the plaintiff attorney. That's important because sometimes the examiner selected by the insurance company does not agree with the insurance company's position and, in fact, and in fact might say that the person was hurt in a particular loss and is going to have problems going into the future. And that statement made by the doctor hired by the insurance company has to be given to the other side and it can be damaging for the insurer. So on -hmm. occasion, it can be sort of a risky endeavor, but if the um, practitioner selected by the insurance carrier agrees with the position of the insurance company, then that's going to be somebody who's going to testify against the plaintiff in a proceeding. Okay. And now are most of your cases of this nature, do they go to trial do, or, or are they settled out of, out of court? Uh, most, most personal injury cases settle. So, okay. uh, and many of them settle absent filing litigation. So if you're representing the plaintiff, yep. you gather the evidence that you need and you solicit narratives from treating doctors to issue opinions that are going to help your claim. And you put together a written package asking that a certain sum of money be paid by the defendant or the defendant's insurer in order to get a release. And then you have a a done deal if you can settle on an equitable amount for your client. But if the insurance company is either disputing liability, in other words, they're saying our policyholder was not at fault, so we don't have to pay anything, or agrees that, well, maybe there's enough evidence to at least warrant a settlement, but we're only going to offer you a certain amount, and that amount is unacceptably low, doesn't equate to a fair value of the case, then you have to bring a lawsuit against the insured, the policyholder, that's going to be defended by the insurance company. And then you go through the litigation process, and many cases do settle in that litigation process short of the actual trial itself. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I I think what I have read, and that, yeah, that's, when it comes to, when it comes that close, for many reasons, it, it's one of those things. Okay, let's just settle this because everybody's kind of pushed as far as they can, and they don't. And if they can avoid a trial, they would prefer to, right? Sure, I mean, that's, Ab- that's- absolutely. And and we handle other types of claims as well. We just settled an employment case the other day, and this hmm. was an interesting situation. I do not practice a lot of employment law. Our firm practices a lot, though. We have three attorneys that specialize basically just in employment law. But we had a situation where a gentleman was uh, retaliated against because of a time off he took for medical care. And Mm -hmm. he was retaliated in the form of, after the retaliation occurred, he was actually terminated and presented with a severance package. And we were asked to negotiate a better package. And after we engaged in certain of those efforts, the employer actually withdrew the severance requiring this gentleman, our client, to bring an action in front of the Massachusetts 
Commission Against Discrimination. And after a bit of fact-finding and record exchanging, going through the investigative process, it seemed to me that the employer realized that either one, this guy wasn't going away, or two, boy, that was kind of a dumb decision. Maybe a mix of the two. Sometimes defendants, whether they are insurance companies, employers, or whoever, will oftentimes just want to test somebody's mettle and just not make much of an offer in order to see if they will pursue the matter. So this was, I think, one of those. And then we did engage in ADR, Alternative Dispute Resolution, and reached a settlement. So. Oh, very good. Okay. So, all right. So that makes, that actually goes into my last question. This time has gone by quickly. So there's employment law, but then did there other, other, there are other uh, areas of law that your law firm covers is right. represents. Is that true? Yes. So in addition to the personal injury cases and Mm -hmm. the insurance coverage cases, insurance Mm -hmm. coverage are a little bit different there. You're not talking necessarily about somebody's injuries, but whether or not a policy has to pay out at all based on language. Mm-hmm. Employment, we do matters involving wrongful termination, retaliation, uh, whistleblower, contract claims, wage mm-hmm. and hour matters, sexual harassment, terminations and violation of public policy, like disability discrimination, state chapter 151B claims. We also do construction law. So we'll do contracted for residential improvements, business, construction contracts. And then lastly, a big area for us is estate and probate litigation. So we do not draft uh, trust and estates or wills, but we do get involved on behalf typically of beneficiaries who are in a position of having to challenge either the interpretation of an instrument, such as a trust or will, or another beneficiary's claim as to what what portion of an estate uh, should go a certain way, depending on various factors. So we do probate and estate litigation too. Excellent. Okay. Well, that certainly what's my appetite to have you back on the show to talk some more about that and construction too. I, you said you've been in the Boston area, the South Shore since what, 06, right you said? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So a long time. So there must be some residual with the, the all the developments that have been going on in Boston all these years, right? So I suspect you probably have some stories there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of interesting stories when you're talking about construction projects. All right. Well, then I would like to have you back on the show so we can talk about that. That's all right with you, John. Okay, great. great. All right. Well, thank you. We have run out of time today, but before we do, before we sign off, I would like to ask you, so who is your ideal client, John, for the areas of law that you practice, personal injury and insurance carriers, but like the type of client I'm talking about, and what is the best way that a potential client can reach you? Yeah, so since we focused on the personal injury area today, uh, where you are interested in helping folks who've been involved in losses, maybe they uh, came across a defect in the way, unsafe pavement that caused them to trip and fall and sustain injuries, or they were involved in an auto loss. We also represent injured construction workers who might have come across the fault of others on the job and that caused them to suffer a loss. So those are the types of cases that we have handled for a number of years and we'd be happy to take a look at. And we're there to help folks out who have been involved in an unfortunate situation like one of those scenarios. Hallaby Law Group's the name of our firm. We're located in Hingham, particularly Hingham Square. The address is 14 Main Street. Our phone is 781-749-0909. Excellent. Great. Well, thank you so much. And so what makes you better and different? I really want to make sure that my listeners hear that. 
Yeah, so we have uh, a number of attorneys with various levels of experience and very broad-based background in the, uh, the practices that we have. I mentioned my background in both plaintiff and defense side injury and insurance coverage litigation. So with regard to our employment matters, we have lawyers who have worked for esteemed defense management side employment firms representing corporations in HR-related advice, but more particularly defending their actions with regard to treatment of employees who are now with us representing the employees. And similar to my discussion about the insurance coverage and the insurance claims, sort of know what uh, the employers are concerned about when they're having to defend their actions and maximize the resolution on behalf of our employee clients. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you very much for all that. So, So our listeners, you've just given them all kinds of good information for them to consider before they reach for the phone and seek you out, which I sincerely hope that they do. So again, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon, for being a guest on the show. I enjoyed having you here. I I really do mean it when I say I'd like you to come back and we can discuss construction and maybe even we'll set up something for probate litigation because I don't know, you've got me interested in that too. I find it all fascinating. So selfishly, I'd like to have you back, please. That's all right with you. Awesome. It is. It is interesting. Thanks, Kim. I appreciate the questions. And David, thank you for having me on the show. My pleasure. And as a reminder to all of our listeners, all of John's information will appear in the show notes of this episode and information on how to get in touch with Kim as well. All right. And one more thing before we sign off, I would like to thank my producer, David, from Boston Podcast Network. Um, Again, this is Kim Calvey, the owner of Boston Edits. My tagline is your voice heard through the written word. So thank you, everybody. Until next time, have a great evening. Thank you. You're a pro already. That's great. (laughs) You mean John's a pro guest. I kept writing yes. down things to coach you on, and then you did them all already. So. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, you have to tell me about that. You have to, <laughs> I, well, well, you and I have to sidebar that one, but. <laughs> we will. Yeah. yeah. That was great, John. Though a lot of a lot of great information in a relatively short amount of time. So appreciate it. Thank you very much. You know, thanks for yeah. that compliment. And, uh, again, thank you for having me on the show. It was great. Yeah, happy to, John. Thank you so much. You made it easy for me, certainly. Yeah, because <laughs> you, I knew I could count on you to explain but instead of just giving yes, no answers. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a little more detail than that. Sometimes I realize I got to move along. So Yeah, but the beauty of that is, that, like I said to you before, you and I were talking, and then you get, that gives me all kinds of language that I can call, curate for you know, search engine optimization. So it only helps you. So keep communicating that way, please. All right. Awesome. Yeah. 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 So thank you so much for your time today. This was fun. And yeah, well, you and I can talk privately about when next to have you on the show. I know David would be excited to have you back too, but yeah, let's, you, you've got a, you've got a, a really good solid law firm and you know, it's a boutique law firm on the South shore. So let's make sure we get you some more attention. All right. No, love to be back. So David, so before we sign off, what I'd like to do is just kind of whet everybody's appetite for what we're going to discuss us at the next show. Mm-hmm. And I would like to, yeah, I know that the, the topic I'd like to approach is come to the table with some words that like, like they're the same, they sound the same, they're spelled differently. They have vastly different meanings and they're constantly confused. I've oh, got, I can't uh, wait. Like, I can't wait for this because this I is, know, right? <laughs> this is going to get juicy yes. um, and fun and funny because there's some typos that I see. I'm sorry. You just can't, you just can't rely on spell check. You and, you and I have some of the same pet peeves, so it'll be therapeutic for both of us and maybe I set think people so. straight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. Exactly. We're doing a public service. That's right. So, yeah. So, so what I'd like to do is just come to the table next time with a list of those words and we can tear those to shreds. How does that sound? Sounds great. I have my home. All right. Yep.
Yep. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, so David, um, thank you so much for today's segment. Can you please remind them where they can find us? Yes, of course. The Communication Commandments is proudly hosted by pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, but you can listen to the podcast and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you tune in. And please, if you enjoy this show, share it with a friend or a colleague. Pass along all the great knowledge. Thanks. <laughs>